0: You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Those are encouraging words, affirming words for sure. Empowering words, one might argue. But what is the effect of that empowerment? What happens from it? Especially if we consider that these words, as they are conveyed in the gospel according to St. Luke, they are not given in a private, intimate setting. No, they are given in a very public setting. They are given in the context also of talking about power and in the context of talking about authority. This spring semester here in OIC, We've been looking into Luke's account of the gospel, of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in that account, he registered these words as he is moving from telling us about the public ministry of John the Baptist to telling us about the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is how John the Baptist announces Jesus. Jesus how he proclaims the coming of Jesus, indicating Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, which means the anointed one of God, the chosen one of God. And John says, one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. And when Jesus does indeed come to John and is baptized by him in the waters of the Jordan, the voice that speaks of Jesus is no longer the voice of John the Baptist, the prophet, but the voice of God himself speaking from heavenly realms. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If we are to take John's words seriously, Jesus is being publicly presented here as the chosen one of God, bearer of divine power and confirmed by divine revelation. So it's only fair to ask, I think, as we listen attentively to Luke's telling of the story to ask, what will Jesus do now? What does this power look like? And what will Jesus do with it? And this is what Luke tells us. He tells us that Jesus goes into the desert, goes out into the wilderness. And this is how Luke tells the story. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread." Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a place where it is is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind." to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So says the word of God. full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days. Why does he go to the desert? And why 40 days? Well, because even from the mouth of Luke, the Gentile, the non-Jew, the gospel is being told as Christina wisely reminded us last week, the gospel is being told in the context of Jewish storytelling, in the context of Jewish narrative identity. Jesus goes to the desert because Israel went to the desert. Because the desert in this narrative, in this identity narrative, the desert is the place of reckoning with the power of God. The desert is the place of grappling with one's identity as the chosen one of God. The desert is the place of understanding the agenda of the power of God. When Israel went to the desert for 40 years, They were in a pilgrimage of understanding their place and identity as people of God. This God who had revealed himself to Moses and who had acted for their deliverance. And as they head out into the desert, leaving Egypt and the land of slavery, they go in the wake of the plagues, the wonders of God as they were understood. And essentially what the plagues did was that they pitched the God of Israel against the divine Pharaoh of Egypt and its pantheon of gods. And the God of Israel was seen to be one more powerful than Pharaoh, more powerful than the gods, more powerful than Egypt. So, those who had been slaves head out into the wilderness, the children of the most powerful God. And yet, they wander in the desert for 40 years. They wander in the desert because recognizing and experiencing the power of God not only isn't enough, it can be dangerous. They needed to understand what it meant to be the people of God. Israel spends 40 years in the desert. Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. And in the desert, Jesus is tested. And Luke presents us the theatrics of the accuser, the satan. For devil is the Greek term for the term used in the Jewish scripture, Satan, which means the accuser. And behind each of the devil's temptations that Luke tells us about, there is an essential accusation. An accusation against God's character. Each temptation is an invitation for Jesus to set himself at the center and understand power as something to be used at the service of the self. Serve yourself instead of serving God is the simplification, in fact an oversimplification of this supposed dilemma. And the accusation that is underlying each and every one of these temptations is that God is not ultimately interested in our good, but only in God's own. That this is somehow a battle between the God self and our self and that one must win and the other must lose. And so the accuser accuses, are you really the son of God? Do you really wield that power? Then feed your hunger. Transform this stone into bread. Use your power to relieve the pangs of pain in your body and to satisfy its cravings. Are they not genuine? Does not the body need food to live? What good is power? If it cannot serve our needs. I want to give a label to each of these temptations. And the labels I will give to these temptations are my own. They're not in the biblical text. But I use them to help us reflect on how this dynamic between Jesus and the accuser, this theatrics of temptation, as I have called it, how they speak beyond the desert. And this first one, I will call the temptation of economical power. The temptation of economical power. Let me explain what I mean by looking at Jesus' answer and by looking to a story that Luke tells us later in the gospel. Jesus answers by saying, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, this is a direct quote It is a reference. And he is referring to what we now call Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. And Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, is a big recap, in a way, of what the people of Israel had learned in their long wandering in the desert before they entered Canaan and settled down. And this word, this man shall not live on bread alone, It is said in Deuteronomy in the context of emphasizing God's providence in their journey from being slaves through the harshness of the desert and the wilderness towards when they will now settle in a land that promises to give them plenty. A land that is described to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And the message is when you get comfortable, don't forget God. Don't forget yourselves. Don't forget hunger. Don't forget dependence. The message is whether you remember or forget that will define how you deal with plenty and how you deal with scarcity. Let the knowledge you have of God and the memory you have of need shape how you deal with your resources. In chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, he presents us again with Jesus in a remote place, in the wilderness. But this time, he is not alone, he is in the company of a crowd. And they are hungry. The disciples with Jesus are concerned because it's getting late and there's no food in the wilderness. And they ask Jesus to send a crowd to the surrounding villages so that they can get food. And Jesus replies telling the disciples to give them food. And the disciples are perplexed because they have no food. And Jesus can't seriously be implying that they buy food for all these people. All they have are five loads of loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus replies, "Great. So let's sit down and eat." And he gives thanks, and he breaks the bread, and the whole crowd dines together. The issue of Jesus and the bread in the wilderness is not for Luke a question of having power. It's not a question of if Jesus has or not the power to transform stones into bread or multiply bread for a crowd. It is a question of how power is used, how power is wielded. Economical power is about access to resources and controlling how they may be used. Jesus will eat when he needs to eat, just like us. Jesus will invoke divine power to feed a whole crowd that is hungry and has no food. But he will not invoke that power to feed himself alone. But the accuser presses on. Presses on, showing Jesus in a flash the kingdoms of the world with all their splendor and all their authority. Aren't you the son of God? Then you should rule. You should wield your authority over the nations. I will call this one the temptation of political power. The power to wield the scepter and enforce your will. Don't you want to change the world, Jesus? Then command it to be as you wish. And assert your authority with the splendor that is due. Don't the ends justify the means after all. Worship God and serve him only. That is Jesus' answer. Worship God and serve him only. And again, his answer is a reference to Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6. And chapter 6 in Deuteronomy is one of those passages that we might struggle with. It contains what seems like very forceful language of obedience to the law. But the law was understood by Israel to be the possibility of experiencing and expressing God's righteousness in the land of the living. In contrast to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh who enforced the power of his perceived divinity through a show of opulence and of oppression, the mark of the presence of the God of Israel was to be righteousness. Back to the Gospel of Luke and again on chapter nine, Luke again shows us Jesus on a high place, a mountain. Only three of his disciples are are there with him this time. And they watch as Jesus is transfigured into this divine likeness of bright light and is suddenly in the company of Moses and Elijah. No other company could confer more authority to a leader in Israel than the company of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And again, there is this voice thundering from heaven, the voice of God declaring, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Jesus goes down the mountain. The Gospel of Luke isn't shy of declaring Jesus' authority and his credentials. The question is what does Jesus do with this power and with this authority? Jesus will not be Pharaoh. He will show righteousness in the land of the living and he will show it in subversively powerful ways. The accuser has a last shot, a more subtle one perhaps, and that is the temptation of religious power. Aren't you the son of God? Aren't you divine? Then surely it must be proper that you display your power at the temple. Who could question you if you've been lifted mid-air by angels in the temple? And Jesus' answer is again from Deuteronomy 6. As it was in the temptation before this one. But Luke's counterpart to this temple pinnacle is a hill and it is a hill outside of the city walls, outside of the temple. It is a hill with a cross on it. And on that cross, the Son of God being taunted. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. What if Jesus had stepped down from that cross or jumped from that pinnacle of the temple Wouldn't he have silenced the religious authorities? Wouldn't he have rallied the whole religious apparatus to his will? Wouldn't he have made everybody believe? Wouldn't he have joined the powerful? But Jesus was never interested in joining the powerful. Jesus wanted to die with the broken. He didn't want to sit on the chair of the high priest. He wanted to crouch at the ground, at the city gates with the leper and the lame. His power was not the power to avoid death and stretch life. His is the power of resurrection from death and life eternal. At the desert, Jesus said no to the temptations of economical, political, and religious power that are exerted over the others and for the sake of oneself. And in Jesus' ministry thereafter, and in his death and his resurrection, he said yes to the power that is revealed and expressed for the sake of the others, of the us. A power that brings life lived together with. Life pregnant with reconciliation and birthing righteousness. A power where bread is broken and shared. A power where God's walk down mountains to be with the broken. A power where the son of God isn't afraid of striking his foot against the stone. Luke lets us know from the start how Christ chooses to wield power. He takes us from the desert straight to the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is me and what I'm doing. And what about us? What do we do with power? And maybe we fool ourselves and argue that we don't really have any. We're not kings. We're not billionaires. We're not presidents and prime ministers. We're not prophets and gods. Maybe we fool ourselves that we are not tempted by economical power, by political power, by religious power. Maybe we pretend our decisions of every day, have no power, but we know better, don't we? How do we, what do we do with power? And what do we do with the power of the gospel? How do we hold this story? How do we proclaim it? How do we speak about it? Do we speak about it for the other or over the other? Do we wield it with grace, sitting down on the ground and walking down the mountain to be with the broken and admitting we're one of them, or do we wield it over? What do we do with power? What do we do with our resources? What do we do with our positions? And there are places in which we can speak over. What do we do with our religion? It has power to redeem. It has power to transform. It has power to bring reconciliation and it has power to destroy and to hurt and to create immense pain. Our financial resources have power to make people suffer across the globe. And to bring relief to people sitting in our streets or farming in our neighborhood. our decisions. The way we speak to our children is political power. The way we speak to those who have less possibilities or those who have more. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. I am your beloved son. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Perhaps we need a time in the desert, a spiritual time in the desert, an internal time in the desert to reckon with how we deal with power. There's many we's, right? There is uh, the church. Perhaps we need to reckon with how the church has wielded power throughout history, Still does so in many places and in many contexts. There is we, the West, and how we wield economical power. There is we who live in a country of wealth and abundance, and how we wield economical power. So many ways, Lord, and also in our in our own, private, particular lives in which the temptation and the accusation ring again and again and again. And again, we are tempted to use power for the one self, not to flourish, (laughs) but to accumulate, to feel somehow safer. Lord, we pray that the gospel may transform us and that the power of the gospel may transform how we express and deal with this in our everyday lives. That it may question us, that it may encourage us to show kindness and grace and generosity and forgiveness. That it may bother us when we're stepping into greed, into accumulation, into hoarding, into protecting ourselves at the expense of the other, when we're dabbling into hate and division, into othering and pushing away. If the Son of God walked in such a way in the land of the living, That's how we want to walk. And the power of Christ who came to be with the broken, who came to be with us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you and may he give you peace. So go in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the Lord, serve the world, and serve each other joyfully.